0: Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Today we're starting a new series called Why Church Discipline. We're talking about what the church should do when followers of Jesus don't act like Jesus. Last month, the Southern Baptist Convention released the report of an independent commission. It detailed widespread sexual abuse throughout its denomination. It revealed that a former president was credibly accused of sexual assault just a month after he stepped down from his position. It described how the leadership kept a secret list of over 700 alleged sexual abusers, but did nothing to take action or prevent them from serving in ministry in their churches. Maybe most heartbreaking were the reports of victims who had been shunned, shamed, and vilified. Women and children were made to feel as if they were causing division by speaking about their abuse while their abusers either continued to serve or quietly moved on to other churches. As the allegations in the report make the rounds in the media, it's clear that the world wants the church to do better. But if the world is calling us to a higher standard, how much more is God? And sexual abuse certainly isn't the only sin we need to address. The question is, how do we do it? Today's passage gives a roadmap, but it only works if we're all committed to the process and understand how it works and why. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can click on the link for today's passage in the description below. Paul's addressing a case of sexual immorality in the church at Corinth. Follow along as I start reading at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those in is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of God. Now, the first way that the church deals with its sin is by removing Christians who refuse to remove their sin. People aren't allowed to continue to say that they're part of the church family if they're not willing to deal with their dirt. The church is to remove Christians who refuse to remove their sin. Now, you can feel the shock in Paul's words as you read the opening verse. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated even among pagans. Now, the city of Corinth was one of the most sexually permissive and morally lax places in the entire Roman Empire. The city's patron deity was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And as a result, promiscuity shaped the local character of the people. When Paul says that there's something going on in the church that even makes their pagan neighbors blush, he's saying a lot. He goes on to spell it out. There's a man who's intimate with his stepmother. Even Roman law didn't permit that, and the Hebrew scriptures certainly forbid it. Somehow, the Corinthians seemed to think that it's a mark of how progressive they are. Likely, they thought it was a sign that they were free in Christ, however the Spirit leads and all that. Paul says, you should be grieving, not boasting. In verse 2, he asks, ought you not rather to mourn? When a brother and sister in Christ sins like that, It should move us to tears. There's a Zulu poem that says An injury to the head is an injury to the whole person, is an injury to the whole family, is an injury to the village. The same is true of the church. When one of us falls in sin, the whole church family is defamed. Before any blaming or defending, there should be weeping. And then, with our hearts still heavy with the burden of that sin, the church should act to address it. In verse two, Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, Jesus laid out a number of steps for how to do this. It will consider next time. But basically, you try to seek the person's repentance. But if they're unwilling to change, the process ends in their removal. He's not saying that you carry the person out and throw them on the street, but you remove them from membership. You no longer count them among the family of God. If someone refuses to act like a Jesus follower, you no longer treat them like a brother or sister in Christ. Now, obviously, this is impossible if you don't have some kind of formal process of church membership. Without membership, there's no way to provide accountability. That's why you can't teach or lead ministries without being a member of the church. Otherwise, you could have the guy with his stepmother girlfriend teaching your teens about relationships. In our church plant in Japan, there there was a young woman who had been attending for a number of months. And at one point, she told me that one of the young men had been calling her and pressuring her to go away with him for the weekend. But he warned her, she said, that if anything happens, she'd have to get an abortion. I assured her that that wasn't okay for someone who called himself a Christian. Another leader and I sat down with a man and he confessed to everything. We offered him help. We offered him support. We promised to give him what he needed to help change. But we also made it clear that if there wasn't repentance, he wouldn't be welcome in the fellowship. That was the last time I ever saw him. I grieve that loss. But the alternative would have been far worse. People aren't allowed to continue to say that they're part of the church family if they're not willing to deal with their dirt. The church is to remove Christians who refuse to remove their sin. Some of you may still question why that's necessary, and that's where Paul turns next. The second way that the church deals with its sin is by removing unrepentant Christians physically to save them spiritually. Even the worst-case scenario of having to discipline a professing Christian has a redemptive goal. You're trying to awaken them to the real condition of their heart so that they might truly turn their life over to God. The church removes unrepentant Christians physically to save them spiritually. Watch how Paul describes this principle in verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He uses pretty stark terms that may confuse you. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message may help here. It says, hold this man's conduct up to public scrutiny. Let him defend it if he can. But if he can't, then out with him. It'll be totally devastating to him, of course, and embarrassing to you. But better devastation and embarrassment than damnation. You want him on his feet and forgiven before the Master on the Day of Judgment. Here's the point. It always feels unpleasant when you have to exclude someone. It's harsh to tell someone you're no longer acting like one of the children of God. But the alternative is, they carry on thinking that they're a Christian when in fact their life isn't showing the evidence that they really are. It's far more gracious to bring the person face-to-face with the reality of what they've done in the hopes that they'll repent and be able to stand with God's people when the Lord returns. Without this, churches can actually communicate a really unhelpful message because, We speak so much of forgiveness in Christ and how we're saved by faith alone, people can start to assume it doesn't matter how we live. But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. In James 2.14, for instance, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is, of course, no. The kind of faith that doesn't bring about change in a person's life won't save them. That's dead faith. That's false faith. And there's lots of it in our world today. True faith leads to life change. True faith leads to holiness. Now, Paul comes at this same truth in another way in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. That's where he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's not that any of these sins can't be forgiven, but he fears that there are some in the church who have been deceived into thinking that they can be forgiven without repenting of these sins. And that's all the more true today. Bringing someone under church discipline is a gracious warning to the person. It says you're not acting like a believer at all when you refuse to turn from these sins in your life. We hope and pray that you are. We hope that your unwillingness to deal with these issues is just a temporary lapse. But we love you too much to pretend that your commitment to these sins doesn't reflect your eternal standing. And again, the goal is to save them spiritually. The goal is their repentance the goal is for them to turn back and embraced be embraced by the church family again and don't misunderstand church discipline isn't just for someone who sinned all of us sin it only applies to people who are unwilling to give up their sin it's for someone who's chronically resisting the holy spirit it's a tough love act intended to awaken the person to the condition of their heart and restore them to fellowship with God and his people. Even still, it's easy to misapply this principle. In fact, the church today usually gets it backward. So the passage ends with clarification and makes it clear that we're to avoid unrepentant Christians, not unrepentant non-Christians. The church is called to deal with its own sin, not the world's. We've got a responsibility for the church's holiness, not our culture's. Avoid unrepentant Christians, not unrepentant non-Christians. In verse 9, Paul refers back to a previous letter he had sent to the church where he told them not to associate with people who are sexually immoral. He thought it would be obvious to them that he was referring to people who claimed to be Christians, but were ignoring God's commands regarding sexuality. But it wasn't obvious to them at all. So he clarifies in verse 10. He clarifies he had no intention of suggesting that they avoid non-Christians who are immoral or greedy or into idolatry. That would cut Christians off from the world they've been called to reach. It would isolate them from the neighbors they've been called to love. Christians aren't called to avoid ungodly non-Christians. It's the ungodly Christians they've got to worry about. Watch how he sets the record straight in verse 11. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such one. Non-Christians are supposed to have different values. They're not a threat to the church. It's the Christians that can cause the most trouble. Paul says it's a person who bears the name of brother that can do the real damage. If someone who's not committed to Jesus asks you to do something that's at odds with God's word, it's fairly easy to decline. You know that they're supposed to be different. But with fellow Christians, your guard is down. When your Bible study leader invites you to a strip club, it causes a different level of conflict within you. When the person who served you communion invites you to get drunk with them, you begin to doubt where the line actually is. When the pastor gossips, you begin to think, well, maybe that's not gossip after all. And the whole culture of the church shifts. Let verses 12 and 13 sink in. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Tell me that we don't get that backward. Most of our neighbors believe these verses better than we do, and they haven't even read them. Do you know what the easiest topic of conversation to get going among most Christians is? It's not the Leafs, or the Jays, or the TFC. If you really want to get Christians going, just get them started on how sinful secular culture is, and then act really shocked. (laughs) It's not shocking when non-Christians don't act like Christians. Why do we think it is? I think I know why. Because as long as we self-righteously judge how sinful other people are, we don't have to focus on how sinful we are. When was the last time you heard a group of Christians in a heated discussion bemoaning the fact that they prayed so little? When was the last time you heard Christians animated about how little they cared for the lost? Or how unloving they were? Or how careless they were with their words? Those are topics that often kill conversation in the church. And yet Paul says that's where your focus ought to be. And be careful not to misapply verse 12. He's saying it's the church's job to deal with its own sin. But it isn't any more godly to gossip about other Christian sin than it is to complain about the world's. The fact is, we're supposed to deal with our own dirt, both personally and as a church. God hasn't given anyone the spiritual gift of pointing fingers. Now if you've been tracking with me as we walk through today's passage, I hope that you noticed that I skipped over the middle section. Right in the middle of this discussion of how the church deals with its own sin, Paul starts talking about leaven and the Passover, and it's important for us to understand. The feast of Passover celebrated God's deliverance to the Jewish people. They sacrificed a lamb and praised God for saving them. Then, for the next seven days, they were to eat unleavened bread. In fact, they had to rid their homes of every last crumb of leaven. Some of your translations say yeast instead of leaven, but while that's easier to understand, it's not quite accurate. In the first century and in ancient Israel, yeast wasn't very common, so they would keep a bit of the dough from the previous batch and use it in the next one. That would trigger fermentation in the new loaf. It was convenient, but not very hygienic, because you could end up passing on germs and dirt from one batch to the other. Once a year, God commanded the Jews to break the chain and eat unleavened bread for a week as a fresh start. Paul applies all of that background and says in verse 7, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed for our salvation. And so the Christian life is like the celebration of unleavened bread. We're making a clean break. As he says in verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So it's important that we treat even the little sins as important. But it's also important to remember that it's a celebration. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a feast, but involved a different kind of bread. We need to remind ourselves of that. The Christian life isn't just about what we give up. Jesus isn't just calling us to go hungry. but well, we do need to adjust our taste We need to get used to bread without the leaven. We're learning to enjoy life as God originally designed it in the garden, a life where sin is foreign and evil is abandoned. And so when a Christian pulls out a pocket full of leaven and wants to add it to our loaf, it's important that we make it clear that's not welcome at our potluck. We may not be gluten free, but we're called to be leaven free. In fact, that's what we are. That's what it means in verse 7 when it says, we are a new lump, and we really are unleavened. Jesus was sacrificed as our lamb so that we could start over, and there's no going back to Egypt. Followers of Jesus acting like Jesus is just what the world expects of us, and it's what Jesus has made possible. Praise God that he did. Let's look to in prayer. Heavenly Father, we grieve the sins that the church has, has been accused of and has so often been guilty of. We grieve that too often sin has been allowed to flourish among God's people. That we have excused our own sins and pointed fingers at the world, placing our judgment in the wrong place. thank you for Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed to deliver us from all this. Thank you that he died in our place on the cross, that we might live a new life and walk in a new direction, that we might enjoy purity, that we might be cleansed of all sin. So help us, Father, to clean house, to deal with our own sins personally, and to deal with our own sins as a church. Give us a grace to lean on you, to look to you not only for forgiveness, but for the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in a new life. Help us to represent you well. Help us to show the world the true, pure image of God as you seek to change and transform us for we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. I hope this message has helped you to see what the church should do when followers of Jesus don't act like Jesus. If it stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, leave a comment, share the link, and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca.